0: Oh, Father, as we now prepare our hearts to come to Your Word, we ask, oh Lord, once again, that You would bless the preaching of Your Word, that You would use Your Word to do Your work in us. Father, we ask that You would feed us with Your Word, that You would nourish our hearts and souls, that Christ would be our greatest desire, that we would see our need for Him, that we would see the sufficiency of his work, and that we would yield ourselves more fully to him for his glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of First Samuel. We're going to be in First Samuel chapter 16 today looking at verses 14 to 23. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, if you need a Bible, we have plenty of Bibles out in the foyer. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, please feel free to take one of those Bibles home with you. Uh, we would love for you to have a Bible of your own, and we're more than happy to give, uh, give one to you. Uh, but today we're going to be in First Samuel. Again, chapter 16, verses 14 to 23. As we continue in our study... Uh, in the 25th lesson. This is 25 lessons that we're in. I think we are going to make it in two years. That's my hope, is that we'll finish this study in two years. Um, Let me ask you, does everything happen for a reason? People say that all the time. I mean, it's a phrase that you hear even unbelievers say. It's a phrase that gets thrown around, and, and apparently the fact that so many people say that irritates a lot of people out there, although these days it seems like you can get irritated at anything. In fact, maybe you're supposed to be irritated with anything and everything. People look for things to be irritated about, and one of the things that apparently people get irritated about is the fact that so many people say everything happens for a reason. So this past week, I found an article that asks the question, why do so many people think that everything happens for a reason? It's written from a secular perspective, so the answers were, were pretty interesting. It was a very interesting article. But in an age in which science is really viewed as kind of the, the pinnacle of, of human endeavors, uh, you have what's called the principle of cause and effect. The principle of cause and effect. In a nutshell, it affirms exactly what it sounds like. It affirms it affirms that every time you have an effect, there has to have been a cause there. The article says, quote, uh, there are no phenomena in the known universe that violate the principle of cause and effect. Newton's third law of motion dictates that for every action there is a reaction, end quote. And in a physical, scientific sense, this is, this is true. Uh, search the universe far and wide, and you'll never find anything in the material universe that wasn't caused by something. But the article goes on to explain that some people don't like the idea that everything happens for a reason, because some things just kind of seem to happen very randomly. But ultimately, nothing is truly, in the ultimate sense, random. Concluding that something is is just random is just a lazy person's excuse for not investigating and Finding a cause. Of course, the Bible agrees with all of these things. It tells us in the, first, uh, in the first sentence of the Bible, the first cause of all things. And this is where it starts to get uncomfortable for the secular mind. Of course, this article didn't go there, but uh, you might anticipate that the secular mind would start to feel a little bit irritated with this. But it tells us that in the beginning, God, who is eternal and is the uncaused cause of all things... Uh, that God created the heavens and the earth. And of course, the New Testament reaffirms this as well. The Apostle John says of Jesus, uh, a verse that you should memorize if you're ever going to talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, it says that all things came into being through Him. Apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And of course, the reason that's relevant with Jehovah's Witnesses is because they think that Jesus came into being. Well, if everything that came into being came into being through Christ then obviously Christ is eternal. He never came into being. But in fact, the Scriptures go beyond even that much. Uh, not only did God create all things, of course the Bible testifies very clearly about that, but Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 tells us that God works all things. All things. Hold on to that. That's the important part. God works all things after the counsel of His own will. And that is to say that nothing ever happens that has not been filtered through the counsel of God's holy and sovereign will. Let me ask you this. Do you believe that? Because if it isn't true, then we have every reason in the world to feel things like depression and and sorrow and uh, desperation and dejection, don't we? This would force us to conclude that, you know, God might love us, but He can't always help us. And that God may promise all these good things, but there would inevitably still be a a certain amount of uncertainty pertaining to His ability to actually fulfill all the promises that He has made. But if it is true that God works all things according to the counsel of His will, and by the way, it is, it gives us a confident assurance in every circumstance we face, doesn't it? Think about it. It should produce contentment in us, shouldn't it? Knowing that everything that happens, even our trials and afflictions, happens for a reason, that reason being God has ordained it. He's orchestrated it all, and not as a means of pouring His wrath out on us, but as a means of a a loving Heavenly Father working all things to make us like Jesus. And indeed, we do think this is true. Our confession, the Second London Baptist Confession, summarizes our confident assurance, our confident belief on this issue in the first sentence of the first paragraph of the third chapter, where it says this. It says, quote, "...God hath decreed in Himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass." Here's God's promise. If you are in Christ, every gain and every loss, every valley and every mountaintop, every trial and every triumph, indeed every circumstance that you face, every event in your life, everything that happens is ordained by God in accordance with His holy, wise, and good purposes. Here's where it gets tricky though. We can't always see how that is going to work. We can't always see or understand how difficult circumstances could possibly be used for our greatest possible good. In the midst of an affliction or in the midst of of a trial, often all we can see and all we can feel is, is pain and often confusion. And that's where we must walk by faith and not by sight. The fact is that someday, in glory, we will, if not sooner, we will see and we will understand how our trials and afflictions worked for our greatest good. It's easier for us to do that with, uh, to, to see God's hand, to look and see God's hand working clearly in the lives of people in Scripture because we have an idea of where things are going, especially if we've read it before. We can see it in Abraham's life. Uh, we see it in the, in the record of Joseph's life. That was the theme of, of Joseph's life. Uh, we see it in Moses' life. And we see it in David's life. Now in the previous passage of our study of 1 Samuel, we saw David anointed as the next king of Israel, as someone who was a very unlikely candidate to be a king. He was just the youngest, the smallest, and he was just a shepherd but he was anointed as the next king of Israel. And yet we also know that David didn't immediately take the throne, uh, which was still occupied by the man who had disobeyed God, who had rejected God, and that is, of course, King Saul. Instead, it seems at least somewhat likely that even after being anointed, David simply went back out to the sheep he returned to the pastures where he worked as a shepherd. It seems fairly likely, uh, I think probable, uh, given that Jesse's household we saw was was a God-fearing household, uh, that Jesse would have, from that point forward, he would have spent a lot more time investing in David. Uh, trying to fill him with as much wisdom as he possibly could. And I think we can also be fairly certain that Samuel did the same thing, that he would pour himself into David's life as much as possible, even while David was out working as a shepherd. But the time would come when David would eventually be called into the Lord's service. And that's what we're going to see in the passage that we'll be covering today, as David will be summoned once again. We saw in the previous passage he was summoned to leave the pastures uh, where he worked to come and stand before Samuel, but now he'll be summoned to leave the pastures again to minister to Saul in a passage that's really filled with one point of irony after another uh, so much irony in this passage. But we'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 14 to 23 today. And the point, the overarching point, theme of uh, this passage is this it's that the Holy Spirit empowers and guides God's people. And his work brings the gifts and the talents that we have into alignment with God's sovereign purposes. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit empowers and guides all of God's people. And his work, his his ministry in us, brings the gifts and the talents that we have into alignment with God's sovereign and good purposes. One of the most revealing things about King Saul's heart and his soul is the fact that even after the prophet Samuel announced that God had rejected him as king, and he announced this right Right to Saul's face, and that God had replaced Saul with his neighbor, David, of course. It seems as though in Saul's mind, nobody was going to take that throne because he didn't go anywhere. So nothing seems to have changed much. He didn't step down as king, but as we read this passage, we're actually going to see that Saul himself has actually changed quite a bit. So let's start with verses 14 to 17. It says, Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp, and it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you, that he shall play the harp with his hand and you will be well. As we start considering this, let's remember first of all that Saul was never saved. He was never saved. He he never put his faith or his trust in, in Yahweh's promises. Never desired to obey Yahweh. But we are nevertheless told that the Spirit of God had come upon him. Some have interpreted the fact that at this point, the Spirit of God departs from him. Some have interpreted this to mean that Saul once was saved, but that uh, you know, when the Spirit of God departed from him, which we read about here in verse 14, that's when he lost his salvation. No, that is not the case at all. Uh, this is the Holy Spirit that we're talking about, by the way. Um, while the Holy Spirit did indeed come upon Saul at one point, All that means is that God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, was empowering him and equipping him and aiding him in carrying out the duties that had had been given to him as the king of Israel. And the Spirit was only with him as long as... He was the king of Israel. Now let's remember that the ki- uh, Israel had a, a, a different relationship to the Lord than any other nation in history. So this isn't something that is really comparable to anything in our day and age. No, once, once Saul was no longer the anointed and, uh, and approved by God, king of Israel, uh, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, no longer had this role of equipping and empowering and, and aiding Saul. So we saw in verse 13 uh, that as David was anointed, the new king of Israel, uh, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. That's what we read in verse 13. So now the Spirit of God is upon David. But it was clearly at, at this point that the Holy Spirit had abandoned Saul as surely as Saul had repeatedly rejected and despised and disobeyed God. So it's not entirely accurate to say that nothing has changed when when God rejected Saul as king. No, this is a pretty significant change right here. The Spirit of God departing from Saul is a huge change. In fact, at least two things happened as a result of God rejecting Saul. The first is, yes, that the Holy Spirit departed from him, which meant that the Holy Spirit would no longer Uh, serve in in these roles of of equipping and and aiding him uh, in carrying out his duties as Israel's king he would now have to face all these challenges all the challenges that a king uh, would have had to face in his own strength and by his own wisdom which you can imagine is pretty bad news for Israel He's going to do these things in his own strength, and and what he shows us here is that there there actually was a huge difference when the Holy Spirit left him. A difference that Saul couldn't help but notice, and neither could those around him. The departure of the Holy Spirit from Saul, by the way, friends, it should remind us, uh, those of us who are in the new covenant. It should serve to remind us and instill a sense of joy within us that it is such a tremendous blessing to have the Holy Spirit not only coming upon us, but actually dwelling within us, guiding us, empowering us, equipping us, and aiding us as only He is able to do. Be sure to note that I'm saying He, by the way, when I refer to the Holy Spirit, we don't refer to it as an "it." The Holy Spirit is not a thing. It's not an "it." Uh, the Holy Spirit is a person. He's as much a divine person as the Father and the Son are. But how do the Scriptures tell us that that we have been blessed by and benefited from the indwelling presence and the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit? I mean, the list is pretty long, uh, and, and the study would be pretty, pretty deep and, and wide. But first of all, he is the one who convicted us within our hearts of our own sin and misery. Uh, then he drew us to Christ in accordance with the Father's sovereign election, John 6.44. He testified to us of Christ as the only sufficient remedy for our misery. Uh, that's from John 15, 26. He took up residence within us and taught us the things that are spiritually necessary and spiritually discerned, according to First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Uh, Paul says, We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is one uh, who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. How do we know these things? Because the Spirit dwells within us and he enlightens us the Word of God, that we may understand. Jesus said of the importance of the Holy Spirit in the lives of His people, He said, it is to your advantage that I go away. In other words, it, it's better that I go away so that, if, He says, for if I do not go away, the Helper, the paraclete, will not come to you, but if I go, I will send Him to you. John sixteen seven. The truth is that the Holy Spirit Plays a vital role in the life of every single Christian. And He's as much Heaven's blessing in our sanctification as Jesus is in our justification. That is to say, as wonderful a gift as, as Jesus is, because He died so that we may be forgiven uh, by God, the Holy Spirit is an equal blessing because he not only applies the atonement of Christ to us, he not only draws us to Christ after convicting us of our sin, but he also instructs us in accordance with God's Word. And he enables us to learn how to live a life that is pleasing to God. Without him, we would have no idea how to live a life that's pleasing to God, and we also wouldn't care that we don't know. Richard Phillips writes this. He says, quote, Without the Spirit, we may possess all things, but we will have them without blessing. With the Spirit, we may lack everything else and yet be filled with the joy of God. End quote. Amen. Without the Holy Spirit, the church, we, his people, are powerless here on earth. What ministry could we, could we ever possibly do by our own strength, or by our own wisdom, or, or by our own desire for what is good and charitable? In fact, there would be not even the slightest good inclination within us were not the Holy Spirit working in us. You know, a church can have everything that the world loves. A church can have you know an enormous building. They can have uh, you know programs that'll fill up your whole schedule for the week. They can have a a well-polished speaker or pastor, if you want to call him that. Uh, And if they have all these things and yet don't have the Holy Spirit, all their church is is a whitewashed tomb, just a pretty casket. And yet, you can have a church that has a small building, a building that's falling apart. You can have a pastor who is just the the furthest thing from being well-polished. Yeah, looking at me. And yet has the Holy Spirit and is thus faithfully devoted to ministering God's Word and, and to prayer and to the sacraments. That's the kind of church that will shake worldly kingdoms and empires. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus said in John 15:5. And yet Paul, who had the Holy Spirit, while he was in prison, had the ability to say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, by the way, he's not referring to throwing a football there or, you know, having a good boxing match. He's talking about finding contentment in difficult situations in the midst of trials. Friends, with all these things in mind, surely we can see and surely we can at least begin to understand what an awful, awful, what a terrible thing it was for Saul to lose the presence of the Holy Spirit. This was not a minor consequence. This was heavy, serious stuff. And so the first thing that happened as a result of God rejecting Saul is that the Holy Spirit departed from him. The second thing is that God sent, the text tells us, an evil spirit from the Lord. And this spirit tormented him relentlessly. Now, people have trouble with this verse, and I understand that. Uh, I'm actually not even sure that this is the best possible way to translate this verse because it gives us the impression that God partners with evil or demonic powers, uh, but there are a couple things for us to consider here. First of all, uh, let me just say this. We never have to apologize for God. His Word says what it says, and, and we don't have any authority or any right. We don't have a moral high ground over God, so we never ever have to apologize for God's Word. He never does anything that is not perfectly just and perfectly right. But in this case, some have tried to argue that there may have been an evil spirit trying to torment Saul all along. This is one way of of solving this so-called dilemma, uh, that perhaps God had restrained that evil spirit until this time in Saul's life. I mean, we do know that Satan had to ask God's permission to torment Job, right? We know that uh, Satan had gone before God to ask if he could sift Peter right? We know these things. The truth is that God can and does use even demonic forces to accomplish His sovereign purposes. Uh, the problem with this interpretation that, 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 uh, this, that the Spirit had asked God for permission to go and torment uh, Saul is that the text does specifically tell us that this Spirit was sent from the Lord. And so, secondly, we should understand that the word that gets translated "evil" here can also be translated in a variety of ways, including the word "harmful." Uh, in fact, that's what the that's the word that the ESV, the English Standard Version, uh, translates this uh, translates this word as in this particular text. And I think the word "harmful," you know, is, is better because using the word "evil" uh, sounds like it's saying more about the, uh, the effects of the Spirit, or the nature of the Spirit, than the effects. I think it's trying to, to establish what the effects of this angel were, not the nature of this angel. So for that reason, I think that, uh, and the commentaries that I read that, that went there, that discussed this issue, they agree that evil actually isn't the best translation uh, here. But either way, uh, God sends this harmful or evil spirit Uh, And so with that said, I, I think that this was an angel sent to inflict temporal judgment against Saul for his sins. And maybe the torment was simply this angel constantly being in his ear, reminding him of what he has lost. That he's lost God's blessing. That his sin was so great. That he had rejected God. And, you know, what a fool you are, and therefore God has rejected you. Uh, Maybe that's what the the torment was. I mean, if somebody wants to to look at this, this text, as some do and say, you know, I I don't think this is entirely accurate because God is a God of love. Well, we'd have to say, well, we wholeheartedly agree that God is a God of love because as a God of love, God hates and God punishes all sin in accordance with His perfect righteousness. God loves righteousness and therefore He hates sin. And because He's just, He must punish sin. And here, nothing is unjust. Saul is getting what he has asked for. But all of this leaves Saul absolutely miserable. And we can say understandably so. It's not a light thing to lose the Spirit of God. In fact, he was so miserable that his own court, his own counsels start to find a way to help assuage and, and relieve his misery and you know, help, help him lift his spirits So they go before Saul with this idea. They put their heads together and they go before Saul and say, let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp and it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you that he shall play the harp with his hand and you will be well. Now don't get me wrong. I completely understand that they mean well and that they really are trying to do their best to help Saul in his predicament. But their response to Saul's spiritual misery is to provide him with an earthly comfort. Saul's problem was that he had sinned against the Lord. That was what his problem was. That's what needed to be dealt with. And yet, none of these council members come up with the idea of telling their king to repent. Turn to God. With a a contrite heart, offer a sacrifice to God. God's grace is always, always available to those who will simply repent and believe in His promises. How how many times do we read in the Old Testament Scriptures things like Hosea 6.1? Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but He will bandage us. Or Zechariah 1.3, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you. So this wasn't a foreign concept in the Old Testament. No, it, it it was something that they had access to, something that they knew they could do. But what we see very clearly here is that Saul did not surround himself from the beginning with counselors who trusted in the Lord or who knew the Lord or who were spiritually minded. Let that not be said of you, friends. Let it not be said of you that you never surrounded yourself with people who don't know the Lord and who aren't spiritually minded. Because man's philosophy Man's psychology is never the remedy for an issue that is ultimately a spiritual problem. Write that one down. And don't ever forget it. Pastoral care, pastoral counseling, it actually starts right here, right here while while we're preaching the Word. Starts in the pulpit. And here's the best advice that I have for any Christian who ever needs counseling. The world's ways will never fix you. They won't. They won't help you. They won't heal you. They won't restore you. Man's philosophy, man's psychology is never, ever the remedy for an issue that is ultimately a spiritual problem. A spiritual problem requires a spiritual remedy. And if you try to bandage up a spiritual wound with a worldly band-aid it's not going to help in fact it's going to make it worse but the remedy that Saul and his counselors settle with is that Saul will recruit send his people out to recruit a harp player let's continue verses 18 to 20 it says then one of the young men said behold I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David, who is with the flock. Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and a jug of wine and a young goat and sent them to Saul by David, his son." So Saul had instructed his counselors to go and find a skilled harp player. And it just so happens that David was a skilled harp player. And it just so happens that one of Saul's counselors knows this because he's heard David play with his own ears. Now the natural man would look at this and say, Wow, what a coincidence that, that David would, would fit the bill so nicely But the biblically minded Christian who knows that there is no such thing as luck or chance or coincidence in God's universe, reads this and says, God's up to something. And God sure has a funny sense of humor sometimes. The most important thing that this young counselor says about David is something that we should be sure that we catch, that we don't miss. He says, the Lord is with him. All these other qualities, those are great, but this is the most important one. The Lord is with him. Now, how would this man have known that? The text doesn't tell us, does it? We really don't know for sure, but I think we can make a somewhat educated guess. Uh, Does it seem possible that this man maybe heard David playing his harp as he sung one of the psalms that he wrote while he was out shepherding his flock. I'd say that's probably somewhere between pretty possible and, and very possible, don't you think? This man knew that David was from that the Lord was was with David and that, that David was the man. Uh, David had been blessed with a lot of time to gaze at the, the night stars and to, to think deeply about what he saw. And perhaps even at this age, we don't know how much time has passed between the previous passage and and this passage. Uh, we, We have to imagine that he's still fairly young, of course, but perhaps even at this age, David had written Psalm 8, and put it to music. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth, who have displayed Your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, You have established strength because of Your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider Your heavens, the work of Your fingers, the moon and the stars which You have ordained, what is man that You take thought of him? and the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty." Let me ask you this. Does that sound like somebody who's been anointed as king and yet has a lot of time to gaze at the heavens, might write? It's possible. But I have to believe that that psalm, one way or another, was written by David at a time in his life when he was spending a lot of time looking at the night sky, thinking about the Lord, thinking about the Lord's relation to to all of creation, thinking about perhaps his anointment as the next king. And if this council, this young council member of, of, uh, of Saul's had heard David singing this psalm or some other psalm, it would be no wonder that he would confidently say that the Lord is with him. Now we don't know how much time has passed since David was anointed, but even at this point, some very positive attributes, some very uh, very good, um, noble qualities are ascribed to him. He's courageous, he's a man of valor, he's a warrior, and he's prudent in speech. These are all very noble things. Uh, it would seem that, that some time has probably passed, months, a couple of years maybe, who knows, but that Samuel has had time to teach and to pour out his life in the service of raising up David into a spiritually mature young man. And the same can be said of any mature Christian, by the way, in our day and age. There there are these same things that are ascribed to David. They're, They're courageous. A Christian has to be willing to go against the flow. A Christian has to be willing to defy the consensus. A Christian has to be willing to do what is right, regardless of what the consequences may be. Jesus says, deny yourself and follow me. And so, the Christian doesn't follow the crowd when it's clear that the crowd is going on the broad road that leads to destruction. Even if, following, uh, even if failing to follow them earns them scorn or inhospitality, or makes them unpopular, or makes them a martyr. You might wonder, how do the martyrs do it? I don't think I could do it. If they were to put a, a knife to my throat, how would I possibly survive? Let me tell you, they wonder the same thing until that moment, because God gives us the grace that we need when we need it. Not before, because when He gives us the grace that we need, when we need it, we learn to rely on Him and His grace. So, the Christian is courageous. The Christian is also prudent in speech because our speech, how many of you guys know this, our speech actually reflects what's going on in our hearts. That's what Jesus said. The fact that Christians don't use profanity bears testimony to the fact that God's grace fills their heart and restrains their tongue. James says this of the tongue. He says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. James one twenty six. James goes on. And he says later on in his text, he says, The tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body, and sets on fire the course of our life, and is set on fire by hell. He goes on to conclude, chapter 3, verse 8, that no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. So how is it that David has prudent speech if nobody can tame this tongue? How is it that anybody can have prudent speech if nobody can restrain their tongue? Who can restrain the tongue? Let me say this, as somebody who once upon a time had a terrible, terrible problem with cursing and profanity and who tried everything in the world, everything under the sun to try to help me stop cursing and found that nothing that psychology has to offer works, let me say that the answer is that God can restrain the tongue because God can work on the heart. God can restrain the tongue. The fact that David is prudent in speech can only be attributed to the fact that the Lord is with him and has filled David's heart with faith and peace and joy. Can the same be said of you, friends? Can the same be said of you? Is is the Lord with you? And would somebody who sees you, would they have the impression, would would they get the impression at all that the Lord is with you? Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. He says, Of the Christian, he's not speaking about unbelievers here. He's actually contrasting the unbelievers who have their mind set on the flesh and who thus cannot please God. He contrasts the Christian with this, saying, But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. So, if the Spirit of God dwells within you, if indeed the Holy Spirit dwells within you, the Spirit of Christ also dwells within you. Indeed, Christ Himself dwells within you. Listen to what Jesus prayed in His high priestly prayer in John 17, verses 22 and 23. He prayed this. He said to the Father, The glory which You have given Me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. The glory which You have given Me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I have that typed twice. But He says, so that You may be in them and You in Me. Actually, I'm going to turn there and read that because I mistyped it. John chapter seventeen, verses twenty two and twenty three. He says, "The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, and that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me." So, if you take all these things together, what we see from the taking the testimony of Scripture in its entirety is that the whole Trinity abides, dwells within each and every Christian. So I ask you again, is the Lord with you? And do the people around you on a daily basis get the impression that the Lord is with you? If you have believed on Jesus, if you have trusted Him for your salvation, the answer is yes. He is with you. He he dwells within you. Indeed, you know that He has promised that He will be with His people until the very end. And you know that He has promised that He will never leave you. And He has promised that He will never forsake you. The Christian can have full assurance, full confidence, not only that God is with him, but that God is for him. Is God with you? Is the Lord with you? If He is, then He's also for you. So Saul sends for David, and David goes off to serve Saul, the rightful king of Israel serving the rejected king of Israel. Even the king who rejected God approves of the man that God has approved of. So much irony. Our passage concludes with a summary of what turned out to be David's first ministry and that was a ministry to a man that he would replace, a ministry to the man who would one day hate him so much that he would pursue him and seek to kill him. Let's continue, verses 21 to 23. It says Then David came to Saul and attended him, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David now stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So it came about, whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. So David would be in this new position. He's not a shepherd anymore. He's been called away from Uh, from the fields, the pastures, the sheep, and he would faithfully attend to Saul in Saul's ministry and distress. We're told that Saul comes to actually love David, although what becomes clear is he he loves what David has to give him, because uh, in the next chapter, when, uh, when Goliath becomes a problem, he looks at David and has no idea who he is. But We're told that Saul loves David. He loves his heart playing. David clearly brought much peace and tranquility to Saul's soul in the midst of his distress because Saul wanted to keep David in his service and eventually would promote him to be his armor-bearer. But being brought this close to Saul, that must have been quite an experience for David, don't you think? Uh, I I have no doubt that he was brought close enough to King Saul to see for himself himself how stiff-necked and how hard-hearted Saul had become toward Yahweh and his sin. Uh, Perhaps being this close to a man with so much power, and yet such a a hardened heart, would turn out to be influential with David when David would grow up and and would eventually sin greatly against the Lord himself. Uh, And in that case, instead of uh, growing hard in heart like Saul has, David's heart would be broken, and and it would be uh, he he would in, uh, he would very rapidly turn to the Lord in true repentance when he sinned. In Saul, David would have been able to get a close up view, a front row seat, of what it meant to have God's heavy hand upon him, with his spirit groaning day and night because of sin, as uh, David would write in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. And thus David would write in verse 5 of Psalm 32, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You see, of course, how opposite this is to Saul. Saul. And maybe David did this because he had seen Saul's response and he had seen how Saul refused to repent. But David wouldn't do that. David wouldn't be that man. So for now, David would be a source of much peace in Saul's life. He'd be a blessing to Saul, you might say. In that sense, he, he was a man that God used to keep Saul Somewhat sane, somewhat sane. A man that God would use to restrain sin in Saul's life even. Uh, one commentator says this, he says, quote, because, of, uh, because of David's presence, Saul's mind was not immediately and wholly disabled. End quote. It's in this sense that David serves as a reminder for us of the importance not only of us being meek, but also of being content with what God has blessed us with. Indeed, every circumstance that we face, including trials, are a blessing. If it's true that God is using them for our greatest good, that being to make us more like Jesus. Indeed, everything that we have, everything that we encounter, including trials, they are all ordained by God. I mean, the alternative to being content with our portion, the alternative to being content with God's provision is, is what? Discontent. To, to feel discontentedness and, and bitterness and, and grief and rage and anger and those types of things. The Christian who believes that God is truly for him simply can't and won't settle for feeling these types of things. Discontentedness and bitterness and grief and rage and anger. God has us, where we are, as we are, to shine the light of Christ before the souls of the world. In fact, as surely as David was a restraining grace in Saul's life, one of the purposes of the church is to be a restraining grace in the world today. You think the world is bad out there? It is. You think it's bad though? It would be exponentially worse without the church. You're the salt of the earth, Jesus says in Matthew 13. You're the light of the world, He says in Matthew 5.14. And in light of these truths, He instructs us in verse 16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are to be a restraining grace in the world. But if the world doesn't know that the Lord is with you, how's that going to work? This is what David did. He let his light shine before Saul because he submitted himself to God's sovereign plan. And he did so gladly. This couldn't have been comfortable for him going before the man that he was going to replace. He knew that Saul had a temper. He knew that Saul was filled with vainglory. That Saul was only about his own agenda. He saw all these things. He had a front row seat in his life. It wasn't what we would call an ideal situation, right? Wrong, because God had put him there. And that's why he was content with it. He was able to be content in any and every circumstance because he knew that God had ordered and ordained all things. Do you have that sense of contentment in your own life? David's obviously the main character here, or a main character, but at the same time, we should see that he is what he is and who he is for the same reason that you are who you are if you've believed on Jesus. It's all because the Lord is with him. It was in the first sermon that he preached that Jesus quoted from Isaiah 61, 1, saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. That's from Luke 4.18. In Christ, and, and in Christ alone, not only did God's Spirit come upon a man, but by the work of the Holy Spirit, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the only and unique, eternal Son of God who created all things, who sustains all things, and for whom all things were made, He took on human flesh and would be called God with us. Emmanuel. David's music may have been able to soothe Saul's distressed and and deeply troubled mind, at least temporarily. His songs surely gave some sense of peace to Saul's mind for a time, but the song that gives true peace, the peace that passes all understanding, is the song that announced the coming of the true and better David the Lord Jesus Christ, when the angels sang, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. Let me ask you this. With whom is God pleased? With those who have repented and believed in His only Son the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who have seen their sin and have experienced the depths of misery from it, but have seen that God has provided the perfect life that He requires in Christ Jesus. And so when a person believes in Jesus, Jesus' own perfect righteousness is transferred, is, is credited to that person, and that person will be blessed with a peace with God that is eternal. Listen, if you haven't believed in Jesus, you don't know what this peace is. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that if you haven't believed in Jesus, you can't even begin to imagine what this peace is like. But why not make today the day that you experience this peace, that you receive this peace by believing in Jesus? Because tomorrow is not guaranteed. Jesus doesn't only relieve us from the temporal distress of our sin by taking it upon himself, but he also sent the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, to come and to reside within us. The Holy Spirit empowers us and guides all of God's people, and his work brings the gifts and talents that we have into alignment with God's sovereign purposes. The truth is, everything does happen for a reason. The reason that you are here, the reason that you are in this world, the reason that you believe in Jesus right now is so that you might be a restraining grace in the world. You are here to be salt and life before men sent by God. And so may He use us in such a way that many of the souls in the world, those who are distraught and feeling the misery of their sin, That they may hear the sweet sound of the gospel, believe in Jesus, and find true and everlasting peace in Him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it instructs us. We know that your word is perfect that it is inspired, that it is inerrant, that it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that we may be equipped for every good work. And oh, Father, we, we know that without your work in our lives, without your Spirit in us, we could never be equipped for works of righteousness. But you have sent the Holy Spirit to take up residence within us. Indeed, The whole Trinity is within us. And you are driving us and motivating us and teaching us and guiding us and empowering us and enlightening your word that we may understand it. O Lord, our desire is not only to be hearers, but doers. And the purpose of our being doers is that Christ may be glorified. And so we ask, O Lord, that you would use us that you would shape us and mold us, that you would empower us and equip us to serve you, to glorify you in this world before a world full of souls who need your peace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.